Hey everyone, my name is Nathan Forster, and I'm asking the big questions of authors and activists, scholars and survivors, poets and priests, therapists and theologians, and basically everyone in between. This will be a resource for people who, deep in their bones, think that surely God's kingdom is deeper and wider than the box we've sometimes put it in. And so what better way to discover this than by learning people's stories and their specialities, in order that we deepen and widen our perspective on faith, community, society, and life. So journey with me as we go deeper and wider. In this week's episode, we'll be speaking with Aaron Nequist on having a practice-based faith. Now, if you're wondering what on earth a practice-based faith is, well, it's a good thing you're listening to this episode. I'm not going to say much more on that. But what I do hope is that you listen deeply, as this understanding of embodying faith as a practice isn't just about doing spiritual things, but is about a whole paradigm to how we understand what it even means to have our faith. And as for our guest today, Aaron is a liturgist, writer, and pastor currently living in New York City. After leading worship at Mars Hills Church and Willow Creek Church, he created a new liturgy, a collection of modern liturgical worship recordings. Shortly after, Aaron started a discipleship-focused, formational, ecumenical, practice-based community at Willow Creek called The Practice. In 2018, he released a book about a practice-based faith called The Eternal Current, how a practice-based faith can save us from drowning. And he continues to create resources to help us flesh all of that out including his podcast, The Eternal Current Podcast. So let us learn and listen as we explore a practice-based faith with Aaron Nequist. So Aaron, tell us about your faith journey. And in telling us your faith journey, how did you also become interested in a practice-based faith? I grew up in a, in a very conservative stream of Christian faith. Uh, Plymouth Brethren was our tradition. Um, and a lot of it was really beautiful. A lot of it was really unhelpful. Um, but it got me started in the faith. And so there's a lot that I'm, even though I've had to let go of a lot of it, there's a lot I'm really thankful for about those formative days. But um, it wasn't until college, and then right out of college, I got a job at a church, and my faith imploded. And that was very complicated. I mean, when you're getting paid every seven days to lead songs, you don't believe anymore. I mean, yeah, very, wow. very dark, very scary, very complicated. Um, I'm not good at faking it. <laughs> I don't have a good poker face. So it was, it was yeah. very complicated. Thankfully, to make a very dark season <laughs> quick and short for a podcast, um, through a couple friends and through a couple particular books, um, I realized that the faith that was dying actually needed to. <laughs> like it, it was a form of Christianity that couldn't sustain me for life anyway. Mm. And as that form kind of crumbled and died... I, I began seeing what what I believe is closer to the invitation of Christ anyway. So instead of just like say a prayer and hopefully you'll get to heaven someday, I started realizing, wait, Christ was inviting us into something now, like participate with what God is doing now. And I remember it's probably as in my maybe 22 or 23. And I remember just feeling like I've been a Christian my whole life, but I think only now I'm beginning to be a Christian like this. It was so amazing and beautiful. And yeah. so, yeah, so that was, again, how to reduce a 20-year journey into <laughs> two minutes. <laughs> but then as I tried to, you know, I had this new framework and this new understanding of what it meant to join Christ in participating with what God is doing to redeem the world now. Um, as mm -hmm. I really dove into that, I realized that, you know, even as a worship leader, like a professional church worker, my tools 
didn't really help people in the way that I know I needed to be helped. You know, I used to joke that what my tools were, were four pop songs and a hymn. So <laughs> welcome to church. We're going to sing some rock songs and then you're going to hear a lecture and then go home. Yeah. And I just realized that's not what I needed mm. and that's not what most people need. And so that launched into an exploration that really led into this more practice-based uh, faith. Yeah. And could you tell us a, more a bit about the the angst of being in this space and you discerning not only in yourself that that's not something that you needed, but you discern that's something that others didn't want as well. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it was happening in multiple. I, I was noticing it in multiple streams. I was noticing it in myself. I was noticing it in our community. And then I, I kept reading about it both in religious and in non-religious circles. I mean, one example, uh, uh, James K.A. Smith, uh, mm-hmm. uh, maybe 15 years ago, wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom. And he was talking about in higher education, they are getting really clear that information doesn't change people. Like filling a student's brain with more and more facts does not change their lives. So this wasn't wasn't religious reporting. This was just about how human beings learn, how the brain works, and yeah, and that was so aligning with what I was finding. Um, I didn't need more facts about God. That those facts were not changing who I was, you know. Mm. And so uh, James K. Smith and the historic church was reminding us it is the it's the practices we do. Um, if I believe about lifting weights in a really accurate way, mm. my body doesn't get any any stronger. Um, it may need to start there, um, but unless I actually go to the gym and participate in these practices on an ongoing way, mm. it doesn't actually bring change to my life. So it was all these different disciplines coming together, realizing um, – I think the church is uh, still holding on to an old model, um, and we need to reimagine some things. Mm, mm. Yeah, my, my instant reaction is just to say, or, or perhaps in, it, we're holding on to a newer model <laughs> and not going far back enough. Yeah, I was just about to say that. We were holding yeah. on to an old <laughs> model from like the 1980s. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so now let's explore the 1580s or the yes, yes. 1280s or the, you know. So, but you're exactly right. Um, it, the the answer is both forward and backward. Yeah, so for you, you were being in these services and you experience, I guess, and would you say an, an abstract faith where it's just about just gaining information about God and that wasn't changing your life? Yeah, just, just, well, let me give a real concrete example. So any Christian who has been in church knows that Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, bless those who curse you. Like that is just in in the, the the red letters of the Bible. All right, love your enemies. Except none of us do it. And I realize none is pretty uh, blanket statement. Um, but man, not many of us actually do that. We want to, mm-hmm. and we believe it's what Jesus said, and we want to obey it. We just don't practice it. Mm-hmm. And so um, this was actually in. 2016 in our community as the Trump uh, Hillary election was getting so nasty here in the States. And we, it was that same kind of thing. We know we should love people on the other side of the political spectrum. We know we should love, but we don't. But just knowing more about it, if I just gave a sermon every week about love your enemies, it wouldn't change us at all. So what we did is we said as part of our gatherings, every single Sunday, we already did a confession and a a reminder of God's forgiveness. And we're going to add another practice every Sunday for the entire year. And it's going to be a time where we pause and name and pray for one of our enemies. Mm, Wow. And oh, it was 
uncomfortable and we never wanted to do it. <laughs> we, yeah, fact, right. One time as we were getting closer to the actual election, um, we put up on the screen a picture of Donald Trump's face and a picture of Hillary Clinton's face. And I just said, you know what? We're going to give you some time to pray. Don't pray for the one you are rooting for. Pray for the other one. Mm, and you yeah. don't have to agree with their politics. You don't have to, you know, but like pray for them as human beings, as wow. people made in God's image. Pray for their marriage. Pray for their kids. Pray, mm. you know, and again, it was very uncomfortable, but that practice mm. started changing almost at like a, a DNA level. Mm. So it didn't just change our brains. Yes, Jesus said it, so we should probably obey. No, it, it got in there and started messing with our hearts. Mm. And that's, I think, what I mean by a practice-based faith. Yeah, so it would be doing very intentional practices such as prayer within a church service and of course, perhaps within your own own life as well, that would shape you all. I mean, I imagine some people will listen to this and go, "Oh, of course, we we pray for our enemies and pray for others." But you're quite right. Sometimes we don't do that. Right, right. We know we should, mm. but if you know, when I look back, I mean, I've been in churches my whole life, and when I add up until that point in 2016, when I add up the amount of times I had stopped to actively put Jesus' words into practice and pray mm. for a specific enemy. Mm. I mean, I could count it on one hand. Yeah. And I yeah. don't think I'm the only one, you know? Yeah, wow. But it's wow. because in many Christian circles, we're not actually taught to do it. We're mm. just taught to agree that it's true. Yeah. And so part of your work then is to create this more practice-based faith. Suppose we had somebody listening to this episode and they never heard of the concept of a practice-based faith or or maybe even words like liturgy or anything or any of those words or phrases how would you talk about it to to such a person yeah well if if they are um really connected to the um the christian tradition um i think i would start with jesus words at the end of the sermon on the mount matthew mm. 5 6 and 7 are his greatest vision for what it looks like to join with what God is doing in the world. I mean, it starts with the Beatitudes, and it's just this breathtaking vision about the kind of life that God is bringing on the world for the sake of the world. Um, and the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, the last thing recorded that he said was, if you hear these words and put them into practice— you are like a person who's building their lives on rock, building mm. their house on rock. And if you hear my words and don't put them into practice, it's like you're building your life on sand. Mm. And I remember the first time, you know, I'd heard that verse. I'd sung that, that those songs in Sunday school. You know, I knew about that. Mm. But the context of him laying out this enormous vision, the central teaching that the New Testament has of Jesus, and his very last words about it is, I don't even care that much if you believe these words are correctly, mm. are correct. Uh, I don't, it doesn't matter if you believe correctly. What I'm saying is, if you put them into practice, it will save your life. Yeah, and that, wow. to me, is just so compelling. Mm. Um, it's almost like Jesus is a, is a parent pleading with his kids by a busy road. Like, mm. don't run across this street or you're going to get smashed, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he's saying, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily need you to say, yes, Dad, I believe you're correct. I need you to not run across the street. I'm trying to save your life, you yeah. know? Yeah. Jesus pleading with us to to do these things for the sake of our own lives and the sake of our neighbors. Mm. And so that is may, that's maybe a uh, that is one way to engage that Jesus was inviting us to do things. Yes. With with each other, with the spirit. Mm. Uh, we don't earn God's uh, power and attention and and favor. We have it. Mm. But now we get to live into it. 
And mm. so in the same way, my kid doesn't earn my love by not running across the street. <laughs> my kid has all my love, which is why I'm saying, please don't run across this busy street right now. And you used a, you used a, a, um, a picture in your, your book and in your podcast of, of that of an eternal current. Does this relate to a practice-based fact? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things I say in the book, which is just called The Eternal Current, is Jesus didn't say, here is the truth, believe it. Jesus said, I am the truth, follow me, mm. join me. Uh, you know, the invitation is participation. Yeah. And so the, the, the word picture in the book is there is already this mighty river flowing throughout human history toward the redemption and restoration of all things. Mm. Like, it's really good news what God is doing, mm. even in the midst of the darkness of this moment. It is flowing toward a new heaven, a new earth, and things mm. put together. And so what Jesus is what Jesus is saying is not merely believe that that's true. Jesus is saying, let me teach you how to swim. Mm. Join me. Um, let me show you what it means to align with the flow of this river. And so, and those practices are kind of the simple and humble ways we can say yes to God. And I'm curious as to how you've seen this outwork itself in the context of, let's say, a Sunday morning gathering. So, of course, you've given the example of, of prayer each week, but is there a, a type of pattern or flow to a service that captures this practice-based faith? Yes. Well, we started... Um... Uh, 2014, we started a community based around this, just called, <laughs> not creatively, The Practice. And this was a thing that we did Sunday night at Willow Creek when I was a part of that community. And we just said, we're going to get together and we're going to learn how to become the kinds of people who don't just believe things about Jesus, mm. but learn to put his words into practice for the mm. sake of our own lives and the sake of the world. And so the way we organized it is there was an opening kind of worship liturgy. And in a minute, I'll talk about the word liturgy, what I mean yeah. and don't mean yeah, by that. Because yep. I know it's very loaded. It's a very loaded religious word. Yes. But we <laughs> kind of an opening 20, 25 minutes uh, time of, of, of that. And then we would have a teaching, but the teaching had to stay about 12 to 15 minutes. Because we didn't want it to be lecture-based. We didn't want it to be about information from one brain to many brains. But teaching's really important. So we um, 12 to 15-minute teaching that led to a practice. And then we'd mm. spend maybe 15 to 20 minutes actually doing that practice. And I'll give you an example of this in a minute. Um, and then once we did the practice together and learned from it, um, then we all gathered around the, the communion table mm. when we receive the bread and the wine and uh, the presence of Christ in that really tangible way. And then the final thing was to be sent out in the world. And I always said the same thing. Remember, Sunday is not the main event, but your actual life is the main event. Mm. So the things that we did here together, you can do it all week. Mm. <laughs> like God is not stuck in church. God is everywhere and fills the universe. Mm. And so these practices we do together are to empower all of us to continue to open up to God's presence as we go. And so we'd kind of do a big launch at that point. So, mm. But the, the center, the heart of it is what is the practice we can do to open us up to what God has been doing all along? Yeah, it, it, the picture I've got is almost like that of muscle memory. There's something about embodying what's being taught and somehow that's connecting to the very concept of believing as well, what, what it means to believe. Yes. I remember a number of years ago, one of my favorite writers, Dallas Willard, who's had a huge influence on so many of us, was reflecting on, this was probably the 90s when Michael Jordan was the you know biggest human being on the planet. I mean, he was everywhere. <laughs> mm. And there was this whole Be Like Mike campaign. And, you know, and that was also happening right when people were, were talking about what would Jesus do and all that. And, and, and Dallas Willard observed, like, just deciding to do what Jesus would do would be like those of us saying, well, I'm going to walk out on the basketball court and I'll just do what Michael Jordan does. 
And mm-hmm. Dallas Willard observation was, well, if you're going to do what Michael Jordan did, starting when you're uh, 12 years old, you're going to give your life to the sport of basketball. And you're going to practice, and you're going to change your diet, and you're going to, you know, like, you're going to orient your whole life into becoming the kind of person mm-hmm. that when you're on the court, you do the kinds of things that Michael Jordan does, you know, mm, and yeah. he's making that observation with Christ, the model of Jesus. Um, you know, we look at the spectacular things that Jesus did, and, and that is beautiful, and we try to emulate that. But so much of what Jesus did was retreat into quiet spaces to pl- to pray over and over and over mm. and bless those who curse him. And like, you know, Jesus had all these practices that through the Spirit's power formed him into the kinds of kind of person that when he was mm. being crucified, he forgave those who were doing it. I mean, he couldn't have just mustered that up, like just mm. with strength of spiritual will. Mm-hmm. That's because of the life he lived mm. and the way God's, you know, God flowed through that. Mm. Yeah. So doing practices that formed him and can subsequently form us in such a way that when the rubber does hit the road in life, we're able to respond in Christ-centered ways. That's exactly right. It's it's about who we're becoming. Mm. It's mm. not just about what we're doing. I mean, the practices, even in a practice-based faith as we're talking about this, the practices are never the point. <laughs> never the point. Mm. And they're never the source of power. God is the source of power. Mm. And the practices are ways that we daily open ourselves up to that power. Mm. And then that God's power, God's grace shapes us and forms us over time into certain kinds of people. Mm. Mm. So I, I often say it's like we're all standing under this huge waterfall and we don't earn the water we and we can't stop it. Mm. We don't behave religiously and God says, ooh, I better pour some water down on. No, 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 no. The water is always flowing because God is good and gracious. Mm. All the practices do is help us move our hands from in our pockets to Mm. out open to receive the water. Yeah, wow. It's a beautiful image. Would you say there's a pattern to it then? There's a kind of a a type of redemptive rituals that, that we do in this understanding? Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, if we use a, a, a working out analogy, um, mm. you don't go to the gym one single time and now you're in shape, right? Mm. Like, mm. yeah, <laughs> show up over and over and over time, it forms our bodies in new ways. Mm. But the, the, the other side is true too. If you only do the same exercise indefinitely and never vary it, Mm. Your body adapts and it stops working. Mm. And so practices, there is a sense on on one hand, it really is about the rhythm of it, about the continuing to uh, do it over and over and to notice where it's working and not working and adjust, Mm. reimagine and breathing new life in. And that's where I feel like this beautiful intersection is possible between the overly modern um, make it up new every week kind of Mm -hmm. church that I grew up in or Mm -hmm. the historic um, we've only done it the same way for 300 years church. And I think we need wisdom from both, Mm -hmm. but neither on their own are the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm working so hard to try to bring the wisdom of the the historic church that we've lost so much of that in the modern church. Mm. But I'm not trying to just recreate what was true in Germany in the mid 16th 16th century. You know, mm. we're actually trying to move forward into the actual world we're living in. And so mm. we're reimagining and breathing new life, but we're not losing on some of this we don't want to lose some of this historic wisdom that has been so helpful to humanity um, throughout history. Our church is very, very modern and very progressive in a lot of ways. The church I'm a part of here in in Manhattan, and we pray the Nicene Creed every every week. Mm. 
and that was written like 325 or 328 or some i mean that that's been around a long time <laughs> and um and yet there's something about it that grounds us to the big story mm. like we're not we didn't just make this up a couple years ago when this chart when this church started <laughs> you know we're mm. a part of a big big historic movement mm. and yeah we're we're re-exploring it and mm. And and uh, trying to breathe new life into it, but we didn't make it up. Is there something about practices that can carry people when our cognitive beliefs fall short? I mean, I, I would like to talk about what we mean by belief soon, but but there, there does seem to be something about practices being able to, to carry us when we're kind of failing to to really believe some of these some of these things sometimes. Yeah, I mean, you know, so, so many of us, maybe all of us, you know, mm. human beings, when we're when we're triggered, when we're scared, when we're um, uh, when we feel scarcity, um, we often revert. You know, don't they call it the lizard brain? You know, mm-hmm. to our to we're not living in our in our thoughts and well-rationed beliefs in those moments. Mm. You know, we are reacting from that fight or flight thing, that mm. deep visceral thing. Mm. Um, we're seeing that so much here in uh, the States, just politically. I mean, mm. there is so much insanity that, you know, if we could back up one moment to just look at facts, we, we would have to react totally differently, but it's not about facts. It's about that, that deep thing. Mm. So um, I think what I'm suggesting is more teaching and beliefs and ideas doesn't always get down to that deep visceral mm. reaction, in our bones. Mm. Um, and, but, but practices through the power of our creator really does. It re-shifts who we are down at that kind of uh, uh, visceral level. Mm. So I think where I think a practice-based faith is is seen in such a compelling way is those who have been practicing for a long time and when they're in crisis are mm. able to respond with grace in mm. a way that just doesn't seem, that seems beyond what they would have uh, been able to do without it. I have a friend who says who he started practicing a more contemplative uh, type of prayer, and he's a really, really brilliant uh, activist type person. But he said, I never experience the the fruit of the contemplation while I'm doing it. In fact, it's usually just kind of like hard work and a little boring. Mm-hmm. But I notice when I'm in the rhythm in the other parts of my life, I'm a little slower to judgment. I'm mm. a little quicker to give it a little to give some grace. Like I see the fruit of it in my actual life. Mm. And I think that is really, really beautiful. How would you describe the relationship between kind of right practice and right belief? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question, and so much of it def- depends how we define yes. all the <laughs> terms. Mm. Um, I think, for the sake of simplicity, I am using them uh, beliefs and practices, um, maybe a little too narrowly, and a little bit as opposites, almost as foils for each other. Mm. When, of course, there is overlap. I mean, mm. without beliefs that uh, lead us towards practices, I mean, that's what it took for me. I, I had to shift what I understood about the way of Jesus. Mm. That all started with beliefs. Mm. But then I realized how quickly um, just shifting my ideas about things um, could only get you so far. So maybe there's there's definitely uh, there's a connection there's a both andness with our beliefs mm. and our actions, and maybe to wildly oversimplify, um, beliefs get us started on the journey, but only practices can get those beliefs down into our bones. Yes, yes, 
I guess at that point we can say that belief becomes embodied in us. And so, yeah, and so then in the long run, the lines between practice and right practice and right belief or as some theologians will say, the you know the orthodoxy and orthopraxy, those lines start to get a bit blurred as we see faith as holistic. Yes. I am never, ever trying to diminish the the role of beliefs. I mean, give me a break. What what we totally. believe <laughs> so much about who we choose to become. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm really um trying to name as unhelpful as mm. correct beliefs as the end goal. Mm. That's mm. What I'm, that's what I'm really going against. I'm I'm you know there's many trees in the forest. That's the one I'm trying to chop down. You know the yes. idea that what God ultimately wants is us for to believe it's is for us to believe correctly about mm. things. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's just not that's not our faith. That is yes. n- and it doesn't work. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, totally, it's not what Jesus taught, and it doesn't work anyways. Oh, absolutely. So, but I, I hope I'm glad you're kind of pushing on this because um, there. I would hate to uh, accidentally communicate that. Ah, who cares what you believe? It's mm. just what you do. You know, of course, beliefs really matter, but just not as the goal. Yeah, and I, I've been wrestling with this, trying to understand the concept that even the word belief, we often, you know, make the word belief to be the same as kind of cognitive belief, but then recognizing, oh, what would it mean for belief in the way perhaps Jesus and the apostles understood it as about about trust, about not having it all figured out, but leaning into leaning into or, or trust falling into um into Jesus and the story of the world that he is telling, even if we haven't had it all figured out. Absolutely. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. The whole idea that that beliefs uh, as understood uh, th- to Jesus and, and Jesus' uh, immediate followers is so much beyond just uh, believing facts and information. Um, I was in a class this semester on the Nicene Creed, and the great theologian Rowan Williams was, uh, we were reading some things that he had written about it, and he just made the observation that this Nicene Creed, you know, uh, we believe in God the Father, this great statement from, from the fourth century. Um, Rowan Williams said that the Nicene Creed is a series of statements about where I find the anchorage of my life, wow. where, I, where I find solid ground, where I find home. Wow. And he just talked about it's not where to say we believe in God in this context is less about where we point our brain mm-hmm. and more about where we place our entire lives. So yeah. to your point about choosing to trust, mm. and that is so compelling. Mm. And so what I would argue now from that really embodied idea of beliefs, mm. um, how are we going to flesh it out? Yes. What are we going to do with that embodied belief? And that's mm. where practices help us embody what we already believe. Mm. So I'm curious then, because I can imagine some people might be asking questions, especially in the context of daily practices or weekly practices at church. I imagine some of my listeners might be asking the question of like, well, where, where does the Holy Spirit come into it? And to give some context, some of my listeners would come from Pentecostal charismatic backgrounds. And I'm sure you've heard it before, like phrases like, well, does this give room to the spontaneity of the Spirit? Like where, where does the Spirit come in? What do we say, what do we say to, to that? Yeah. Well, I, I think um, what's cool, I just was talking to a pastor who's trying to move in more practice-based ways, but was worried that his Pentecostal community might not go along with some of that. And my knee-jerk was, no, your, your Pentecostal community is ahead on that journey because you believe the Spirit is already working and moving and guiding. Practices are simply the way we open up to that. Mm. Um, mm. The, 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 when I'm not participating in certain practices, the Spirit is not moving less in my life. I just don't slow down to notice. Mm. 
So I think actually the most some of the most compelling Christians on planet Earth, some of the most compelling humans on Earth, are those who have who have helpful, time tested practices and containers that help them actually open up to a more Pentecostal, even mystical engagement Mm. of the Holy Spirit. So Mm. it's almost like this is a little more pragmatic, but um, in in some of my more worship leading days, I used to have people ask, so are you a preparation worship leader or are you a led by the Spirit worship leader? As if those two things are (laughs) opposite. But Mm -hmm. so I would usually say, well, um, both. And I really, really try to listen to the spirit as I prepare. Yep. But more than that, I've found that when I'm more prepared, I am more free to listen to the spirit in the moment. Mm. So Mm. when I'm stumbling around, like I didn't practice the song enough, I don't really know those chord changes. I'm, I'm glued to my music. I'm not also saying, Spirit, where are you guiding us and how can I follow? Mm. But when mm. I'm prepared enough, it's almost like taking all these things off my shoulders mm. and I can just be open. And and very often the times, some of the real Spirit-led moments happen in very structured contexts because we all had the, had the space and the freedom to listen. Mm. So I think they are precisely linked, and often you're either both prepared and listening to the Holy Spirit, or you're not prepared and in chaos that keeps you from listening to the Holy Spirit. So I I would say it's often both or neither. Mm, mm. No, so very true. So having preparation, having um, a practice, having an, an, an order to, to both a service and, and also in, in your own personal devotion will actually create room, the, a, a spontaneity to the spirit. And you're right, these, the, the very practices are spirit-inspired as well, so it's not an either-or, as if God is somehow absent in, in more uh, ritualistic practices. I know the word ritual can be a dirty word, perhaps, for, for some people to hear, Maybe there's a distinction between ritualism and and redemptive rituals. I think that's exactly right. I mean, a ritual is brushing your teeth every night before bed. Like that's mm. <laughs> that's a ritual. So mm. it's it's a ritual is neither good nor bad. But I would you know um, I would say that brushing your teeth every night is a really good ritual. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. some some of the wisdom of it is a you do it over and over and over so it keeps your mouth clean but also the nature of it is it gets baked into your um you don't have to think about it you're Mm. you're not it it becomes a part of who you are and how you live on this planet Mm. and i think that's really really good and now we have other rituals that are really damaging i was just sharing with a friend um I am doing way too much stress scrolling of Twitter right now. Mm, I hear you. <laughs> it is not forming me into a better human being. Wow. Yeah. Um, in fact, it's eroding some things mm. that um, I think God wants to do in me. And so that ritual is really unhelpful. And I think I need to create some new rituals. I've actually been thinking about a different morning ritual. And again, I'm using ritual in Mm. a real neutral sense. It's just Mm. the thing that we choose to do over and over that becomes a part of us. Yep. Um, Yep. But how would my life be different if my morning ritual wasn't stress read all the terrible things that happen in the world on Twitter first thing in the morning? (laughs) Yeah, totally. But instead got a cup of coffee and sat with my kid Mm. and said, what, you know, Henry, what's going on in your life right now? You know, Mm. what are you, what are you nervous about school today? What do you, you know, that, that is a different ritual that would form a different kind of person. Mm. So it sounds like that you're saying both in the context of our personal lives, but also in the context of a church that, I mean, it's, it's the myth of a non-ritualized life, but it comes out. Yes. Yeah. But it's, <laughs> we, we all have a pattern. We all, um, it's just whether or not it's helpful or not. 
That's exactly right. I was a part of a very, very modern, anti-liturgical, anti-historical church. Mm. And our Sunday gatherings were exactly the same every week. (laughs) Two fast songs, a welcome, an earnest song, offering, uh, teaching, closing earnest song every week. (laughs) And that's not bad. But just let us, we let us never say we are not we are not people of ritual, you know, mm, mm. which is why when I talk about liturgy, I'm simply meaning what is the thing that we are doing together when we gather? You yes. know, the 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 word liturgy can be translated literally the work of the people. Yeah. yeah. And every single church has a liturgy. Mm. Um, every community of any kind, a classroom has a liturgy. We are liturgical mm beings as human beings. The question Mm. is, in what ways is your particular liturgy forming your people? Mm. And that, I think, is the compelling. Not are we liturgical or not. We all are. Mm. How is it, how is our current liturgy forming us? I think that's a really compelling question. Yeah, and it's a it's a good question. Um, I, I imagine some of my listeners would still say something like, uh, but, you know, in our services, we have prophecies and, and, you know, words of knowledge. But, I mean, we're not disregarding that as if that's also not part of a of a liturgical space as well. That's incredibly important part of of the gathering. I mean, mm. um, in fact, and it's so I, maybe your listeners won't believe me, but the more I've been engaging the historic framework, the the, mm. the shared wisdom of what we do when we gather, mm. the more room we are finding for mm. the Spirit to surprise us. Mm. And I'll mm. give you a real simple example. Yeah, you know, please almost do. every Christian tradition, every time they gather, has a, a space for confession of sin. Now, I didn't grow up in that. Um, in fact, we would never do that. Um, but we were the outliers. Because when you look at at the different major streams, so I've been looking at that as like, well, why do we not do that when when so many other Christians do that every week? And so we've been exploring that. But um, just reading a prayer of confession, you know, mm. oh God, we have confessed that we have sinned against you and what we have thought, done, and de- you know, the, the the whole is is only goes so far. And so we added every week we would pray this historic confession from the Book of Common Prayer, and then we would just mm-hmm. take 90, you know, maybe a, a minute and a half to two minutes of silence. Mm-hmm. And I would guide us to, to give us some options for what to do in that silence in case people were really uncomfortable or people could do whatever they want. But but that was such a compelling, the, the, the communal prayer opened us up and gave us language. Mm. You know, the prayer said, in what we have done and what we have not done. Mm. Well, I don't, I rarely think about how have I sinned and what I haven't done. That was a very mm. helpful framework. But then we got the liturgy out of the way and just said, for the next two minutes, it is you and your loving creator. Mm. What do you need to say? What do you yeah. need to hear? And so it ended up being kind of that both and the the framework gave us beautiful language mm. to then mm. do what, have a conversation that only the spirit could guide. Yeah, and it actually enables people to connect with these rituals, these liturgies, um, in ways that isn't just by rope. And I, I want to be want to be heard right because sometimes we will do these things by rope, and sometimes there can be an element which the liturgies carry us when we can't carry ourselves. So we say the word. So there is that side of it, but also on the flip side to actually recognize that um, having this space to slow down and to really take in these liturgies as they're being said, it actually yeah, enables us to really connect with with what's being said when we do take the time to slow down. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And a liturgy doesn't have to be quiet. Mm. Um, and again, there's, there's, there's a lot, there's a, (laughs) okay, let me make a distinction here. 
there when yeah, people talk about too. a church being more liturgical, they mean that often in two different ways that are that are that can overlap but are real different. One is they mean that stylistically. It feels quieter. It feels more reverent. It feels more Catholic. It, you know, like the mm. style feels liturgical. But the way that I'm tr- trying to use it is way more liturgical means we have a thoughtful plan for the journey that we're going on together, um, that we're doing this thing that we're doing together. So it's the songs, it's the prayers, it's the silence, it's the listening, it's the it's the whole journey. And in that way, we need great moments of silence and we need standing on our chairs, arms raised celebration. Mm. We need moments of lament like the Psalms show us. I mean, a third of the Psalms are lament. And approximately 0% of modern worship is lament, right? Yes. And so, <laughs> so, but I want to be real clear. The goal is not then we only lament when we come together. That's terrible. <laughs> no one <laughs> wants, that's not healthy. That's, mm. Um, mm. but it better be part of what we do. Mm. And, you know, I was talking about this. Um, my wife was asking, she's like, you know, Aaron, we're, we're starting to do all these different things in church. So not just sing songs. Like, what are we doing? Why are we doing that? And I was trying to explain it. And I was very inarticulate. And finally, she interrupted me. And she goes, oh, so basically, you want to serve a well-balanced meal every Sunday. Mm. And that, for me, was the most helpful language for what we're trying to do in a quote unquote liturgical service. I realized that I was serving the exact same meal every week, four pop songs and a hymn, and it's a good meal. There's nothing wrong with it. It's very, it's healthy, but it's only one kind of meal. Mm. Our community was malnourished. Mm, Wow. And so we started saying as a community, you know, to take this analogy a little farther, it'll break down at a certain point, of course. But what are the food groups that our community never gets exposed to mm. spiritually? Mm. And how do we bring those into our communal gatherings? Yeah, well. Wow. Um, what are the food groups we eat too much that we need to cut back on a little bit? What are the what are the things we need to introduce? And that just um, created all these new possibilities for why we were gathering together. Mm, wow. Wow. No, that's powerful. I'm curious, in what ways has a practice-based faith changed your relationship to God and to your neighbor? Oh, my. Um, you know, uh, the my knee-jerk, my, my initial response is it's absolutely changed everything. Mm-hmm. And um, I know hyperbole is not super helpful, so let me unpack that a little bit. Um, maybe I'll start in this way. Uh, one of the things that the practices have helped me learn is that God is always moving everywhere all the time. Mm. And what the practices have showed me is it is not because of the practices that God does stuff. It's because of the practices that my eyes finally open up to see that God's doing stuff all over the place. Mm. And so I've been finding that, like, even when I'm just walking around the city, you know, uh, about a year and a half ago, we moved to New York City. And so now, you know, we don't have a car. We uh, do a lot of walking, riding the train. The way I'm looking at people Mm. has just changed. Mm. And I didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> I'm not like trying to be religious in how I'm looking at people. I'm just starting to notice like, man, God's at work at that woman's in that woman's life right there on the train. Wow. And she looks really stressed out and she looks really afraid. And I wonder what God is trying to do. And I've even started praying and I'm not super brave yet, but I'm, I've even started praying God, is, is there something I should be doing? Should I ask her? 
you know, and you got to be careful on the New York sure. subway. You know, uh, most people do not want to talk and that wouldn't be appropriate. But <laughs> but the fact that that question mm. is now bouncing around in my heart, yes. I'm a pretty fundamentally selfish person. That is not that is not naturally what I would be asking, but it's happening. And wow. so it's it's almost like it's. um like a new operating system or mm. A, mm. there's something that has been shifting in these last 10 years that is just making me in, engage with reality in a different way. Mm. And if I'm really honest, I, I don't always know how to respond. I don't mm. yet know the right thing to do in the moment, but I'm just paying attention. My, my eyes are really different. And I think that's because of these streams that our community has been swimming in, mm. it's it's really changed some things. Yes, wow. And I imagine when a whole community does this, you know, we're talking about uh, multitudes of people all doing this, all coming together. Now you're a more more of a non anxious presence as a community into the world and and observing where God's working in the world. And I would sure love for that to be true. Um, a community less likely to overreact in a moment, less likely to, you know, want to destroy our enemies and more likely to reach out. And yeah. Mm, wow. Where would you recommend our listeners start in their journey of leaning into a practice-based faith? Yeah, I, I think um, this wasn't the answer I was going to say, but I think the first thing I would do is if you are not a part of a tradition that uh, practices communion every week, mm. Um, mm. to mm. find a space where you can practice communion every week. So mm. I'm not saying like leave your church and whatever, <laughs> but very often, you know, if, you know, jump online, there is the Eucharist is being offered in different contexts. And I know for our community, uh, the practice community, I mean, we were at Willow Creek. Willow Willow did communion about once a quarter, and it was just not a very, it was, it was not a very central thing. Mm. And to this day, if you would ask, you know, 10 different people who are part of this whole practice journey, what was most transformational? Mm. I bet seven out of 10 would say practicing communion. Wow. Receiving, because, I mean, it's the ultimate tactile. Like Mm. you are receiving this bread and this wine that in some ways are the body and the blood of Christ. And you're not just believing it with your brain and taking it in your ears. You're actually putting it in your body. You're ingesting Mm. this sacrament. I mean, it is... It is mysterious. I can't explain it. Yes. Yeah. But I can wow. attest to what happens mm-hmm. when we begin submitting to this practice. So I would I would say that would be a beginning space. Or maybe there's some somewhere in your community where it's offered once a month. And you can say, All right, this, you know, on, on this Wednesday night in this place, I'm gonna but begin practicing communion. Mm-hmm. Um that is that is probably the most powerful communal practice. Yes. And then I would say um, in terms of a private personal practice that you could begin like the second this podcast ends is some sort of silence. Um, being being silent mm. in God's presence and in your own presence. And mm. I think there is a reason why mindfulness is having mm. such a moment right now Mm. Um, you talk to you talk to brain scientists who don't necessarily believe one thing or, or another about God, and they'll say we des- they know what the mm. contempl- they are discovering what the contemplatives have known all along. Yeah, wow. Something happens when we let go of our obsession with noise and words and thoughts and actions, mm. and kind of consent to reality. Mm, and mm. rest in what we can't control. Yes. And you know, brain science shows us why that's healthy as human beings and we 
those who believe that God is holding this universe know it's because God is constantly reaching out and beckoning to us. Mm. And it is only us who rarely stop to pause and listen and hear that still small voice. Wow. Wow. So perhaps to end this episode of the podcast, will you lead us through some form of practice-based faith, perhaps a, a, a prayer or a type of prayer, a way of doing prayer with us? Oh, I'd be, I'd be honored. Um, and so maybe let's do this. Um, I have a spiritual director who always says, when you pray, say to God with your body what you're saying with your brain. And, you know, his observation, he always says to me, Aaron, you're not a brain on a stick. Wow. Like you are a fully embodied image of God. And so, so I'd love to invite um, you and me and all of us listening, <laughs> except those driving, please don't, uh, <laughs> don't do anything dangerous while you're driving. Just listen. But if, you, if you're not, would you just place both hands over your heart? And you're placing them both on your physical heart, of course, over the um, what keeps you physically alive, but also over the center of your being. Mm. And I want to invite us to take two deep breaths and just notice again that you are already in the loving presence of your Creator. For it is in God we live, move, and have our being. God is closer than the air you breathe. And let's pray together. God, we thank you for your love. God, we thank you for life. We are not keeping our hearts beating right now. We are not filling our own lungs with breath. You are. Thank you for life. And God, thank you for the ways that you are actively and graciously moving in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our countries, and around this world, even in such a dark moment in so many ways, we thank you that you have not given up on us. Mm. And God, we humbly ask in all our different stories and different uh, places in life and in faith, we ask that you would help us align our lives with what you are doing. Mm. that you'd give us eyes to see how you're working in us and through us and in spite of us. You'd give us eyes to see, and then you'd give us the wisdom to know the humble ways that we can respond, whether they are very religious feeling practices or whether they're very non-religious, um, but, but practical ways of opening up to your love to your healing, to your truth, to your grace. We ask that you would mm -hmm. guide us in every way. And then maybe finally, God, I pray that you would lead us to at least one other person who's on this same journey mm -hmm. because we can't do this alone. Mm -hmm. And I pray that you would guide us even today, even this weekend, even this week, into a conversation where we recognize, oh, they're doing this too. Mm -hmm. And um, we would find fellow journeyers and fellow, fellow practicers yes. to walk on this path together. Mm. So God, we thank you for life. And we pray this together in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we all say together, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Aaron. Amen. Well, that was today's episode on exploring a practice-based faith with my guest, Aaron Nequist.
To find out more about his work, follow Aaron on Facebook by searching for Aaron Nequest or on Twitter or Instagram at Aaron IEQ. Also, check out his podcast, The Eternal Current Podcast, as well as his liturgies at www.anewliturgy.com, which is all one word. These liturgies are also available on music apps such as Spotify.